0: Well, we've got, a, we've got a packed house, and that underscores both the importance of the topic and the quality of the panelists and the, uh, and the report. So good afternoon and welcome. I'm Fred Kemp, President CEO of the Atlantic Council. And thank you for joining us for this uh, conversation on America's approach to Middle East security uh, with a particular emphasis on the intersection of the nuclear agreement with Iran and the region's general security situation. Um, Uh, We thought we would be here all uh, to either uh, celebrate a deal getting done or uh, discuss why it didn't get done uh, and uh, and celebrate or bemoan that. Uh, I think we can safely say that's not going to happen today and probably not in the next couple of days. Uh, But we can talk about that as well. I want to extend a special welcome to our esteemed panelists and to the Atlantic Council Board of Directors, many of whom are here and and some as well from the uh, Diplomatic Service. I see the Ambassador of Iraq and I think others are here as well. Um, uh, I want to give a special welcome to a personal friend Richard Haas. I think this is his first time in our new premises here. Uh, He's been a personal inspiration to me, a friend, and um, Uh, And during my transition here from the uh, Wall Street Journal was incredibly helpful with his advice, and I really want to thank him publicly for that. Um, We couldn't have picked a more timely date for the conversation. As I was talking about Iran, last week negotiators from the P5-plus-1 countries and Iran extended the deadline for a final nuclear agreement from June 30th uh, to today. Uh, Diplomats have been working toward this deadline for months. Uh, uh, it appears that talks with Iran over a nuclear agreement will extend past tonight's deadline and into the next few days as diplomats try to hammer out a deal. Um, uh, but, uh, but we'll hear more from the experts on that. Both sides appear determined to successfully finalize the agreement, but there are several sticking points uh, that stand in the way. Uh, our conversation comes after the Camp David summit in May at which President Obama sought to reassure Gulf leaders of the United States' commitment to containing destabilizing aftershocks of an Iran deal, yet the upbeat joint statement that resulted could not, as the New York Times editorial board pointed out, uh, quote, conceal sharp and persistent differences over the deal. Uh, In that context, a frank conversation about the United States' approach to Middle East security is not only relevant, uh, but urgent. The discussion complements a report that we're launching today, it's, it's online, we don't have a hard copy here today, but it's already online at AtlanticCouncil.org, uh, and we're launching today by Brent Scowcroft Center Senior Fellow Bilal Saab titled, The New Containment, uh, Changing America's Approach to Middle East Security. Um, in which uh, Bilal argues the U.S. should take on a new role in the region by seeking to contain The most pressing security challenges uh, to local stakeholders Uh, in a moment i'll invite bilal to the stage to uh, tell us a little bit more about his report and then set up the panel conversation Uh, we've been working to address strategic issues uh, confronting the middle east on multiple fronts our middle east peace and security initiative housed in our scowcroft center on international relations uh, brings together thought leaders and experts to design innovative strategies for tackling present and future challenges. And I underscore the word strategies because General Scowcroft, as we launched the center, felt that what was lacking uh, it was a U.S. strategy not only for the Middle East and the world and that we had become a little bit too much all tactics and not sufficient strategies. So we're, we're hoping to do our small part in addressing that. Uh, most recently, the Scowcroft Center on this set of topics hosted the UAE Ambassador Yusuf Al taiba uh, former uh, Assistant Secretary for Defense and International Security Derek Chalet, Associate Editor and Senior National Security Correspondent for the Washington Post Karen DeYoung, and Stimson Center President uh, Ellen Lapson and uh, and Brookings Martin Indyk for a really rich uh, discussion on U.S. reassurance and President Obama's summit with Gulf leaders and this will build off of that. We also recently launched our Middle East Strategy Task Force within our Rafi Kariri Center for the Middle East uh, in cooperation with the Scowcroft Center and that's led now by uh, bipartisan co-chairs Secretary Madeleine Albright uh, and Steve Hadley uh, to examine the underlying issues that drive extremist violence and threaten regional and global interests. And then, as, as with all things uh, we tackle here at the Atlantic Council, we try to bring together a transatlantic community of U.S. and Europeans uh, uh, around this set of issues. Uh, before I hand over uh, to Bilal to get us started, uh, let me briefly introduce our panelists. I've already um, introduced Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, longtime writer and commentator on. Uh, Middle Eastern affairs, one of the top strategic thinkers in America today, who's been warning about the danger of a 30 years war in the Middle East. Uh, Barry Posen, uh, professor of political science and director of the security studies program at MIT, who's written extensively on the issues of U.S. grand strategy, international security and America's engagement in the Middle East. Uh, And, of course, the moderator for today's discussion is Barbara Starr, I think she's well known to all of you in the audience, Pentagon correspondent at CNN, uh, and one of the most respected uh, journalists uh, here uh, on this set of issues. Barbara has traveled to Iraq, Afghanistan on multiple occasions, and reported regionally from the, uh, the Persian Gulf and Beirut. Uh, She brings more than three decades of experience in print and broadcast media uh, covering topics ranging from energy to security. So, Barbara, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, So the event is on the record. Uh, Encourage everyone to follow the conversation on Twitter by tweeting uh, at AC Scowcroft uh, with hashtag ACMideast. So with that, let me pass to you, Belong.
1: Thank you, Fred. Uh, Barbara, Richard, uh, Barry, thank you so much for being here. I know you came from out of town. Uh, I also want to thank the editorial and communications team of the Council for helping me release uh, this report, and special credit to Alex Ward for coming up with the clever title. Uh, Owen, thank you for the research assistance. Deal or no deal with Iran, the fact of the matter is the Middle East is burning. The United States and its allies have engaged in tireless diplomacy with Iran over the past few years to produce a tentative agreement that would limit Iran's nuclear program for the next 15 years or so. But I say in the report that the hard work does not stop here. As a matter of fact, it may have just begun. As strategically significant as an Iran nuclear deal is, it's only one piece of the Middle East security puzzle. I think we need a comprehensive security strategy for the Middle East. Before we get into that, and we'll have a chance to debate what is the best security strategy that the United States should pursue, let's get a few important things straight. And I'll make four points very briefly. First, there is no lasting security and stability in the Middle East without real political and economic development. That's probably the most important point i am making in the report. Until the Arab world charts a path forward and starts addressing its rampant political decay, uh, religious hubris, and economic mismanagement, We're not going to get very far and regional security will remain scarce and challenges such as ISIS, Iran's destabilizing influence in the region and the growth of violent extremism, just to name a few, will continue to present challenges and probably will worsen with time. Two, the United States neither can nor should be the agent pushing for change in the region. I'm of the opinion that change, at least the sustainable and peaceful type, should almost always come from within. The disastrous U.S. experience in Iraq since 03 provides enough warning about the consequences of U.S.-led nation-building in the Middle East. Regardless of its intentions, mind you, they could be the most noble. Washington does not have sufficient economic resources, political know-how, or commitment in the region to do it right. Moreover, any heavy US involvement would delegitimize the process and undermine the local ownership of the process. Just like other civilizations in history before them, the Arabs are going to have to engage in this process of trial and error that ultimately will produce a viable and legitimate social contract. No one else can do it for them. Third, this is where some will challenge me on this, this profound Arab reform process cannot really meaningfully start without first addressing this growing set of security challenges in the region. I see those as major obstacles. You know, Back in the day, the uh, authoritarian governments in the region used to fabricate and imagine security threats to delay reform and to uh, put political opening at bay. Well, unfortunately, today, it's actually real. Uh, reform has taken a back seat security is highest on the public policy agenda. So if we can't address these security challenges, my concern is that this very necessary and critical reform process can't even start or achieve any desirable outcomes. Final point. If you agree with that, the United States cannot address those security challenges alone. It's that simple. It will need its regional partners. So. These are the four points that constitute the backbone of the report, and they heavily inform the security strategy that I'm proposing today for the United States in the Middle East. If you agree with those four points, then you probably agree with some of what I'm about to say. And the smartest thing to do for the United States, given these conditions that I just described, is for it to help its regional partners, ideally adversaries too to start this process of change with the least amount of violence and chaos. The ultimate goal is to help create a reasonably secure political space in the region in which America's regional partners can, again, undergo this process of change. Sounds like the surge strategy, but probably on a bigger scale. All right, so the million-dollar question becomes, what is the best strategy to do that? You can stay the course. Which is pretty much the Bush, uh, the Obama administration's CT-focused counterterrorism-focused strategy, and we'll have a chance to debate the pros and cons of that. But I think the results speak for themselves, and I argue in the report that this is probably not the best approach. It is too minimalist and vastly non-interventionist. You can go back to President George W. Bush's freedom agenda, maybe make a few tweaks here and there but still primarily rely on heavy military intervention and promotion of free elections, probably with little regard for the other more important elements of democracy, which is the rule of law, good governance, and economic development. I don't think that's a good idea either. And I say why in the report. But by all means, those are two security options that should be very honestly and carefully evaluated, and they should be compared to what I'm about to propose today. A far more cost-effective, sustainable, and strategically sound security option for me is a more robust U.S. containment strategy that has the following six pillars. The prevention of Iran's possession of nuclear arms. I think that comes on the top of the agenda. The Obama administration has obviously placed heavy emphasis on that as a core priority. I think we're on track for that unless something really bad happens in the next few days. Deterrence of large-scale military conflict, that's an old security goal, but it should continue. And if deterrence fails, obviously, military intervention on the side of U.S. partners. The United States should try to help stop escalation in the event of a war between Israel and Hamas, or Israel and Hezbollah. Last time I checked, since 1991, most wars in the Middle East have been between a state and a non-state actor. So I think we should pay closer attention to what non-state actors have been doing and how they can instigate wars. Now, Why do I say stop escalation and not prevent them? Well, because the United States can't prevent war between Hamas and Israel or Hezbollah and Israel. The best it could do and probably the only thing it could do is once the bullets stop, start flying, it could stop escalation by taking concrete diplomatic action uh, to do that fourth pillar is the reduction of the scope and severity of civil wars. Once again, the United States cannot stop civil wars. The United States cannot solve civil wars if history is any guide, with a few exceptions probably, but in the Middle East the record is not that stellar. The best they could do is contain them by reducing the severity and the scope of those civil wars and making sure that they don't spill over to other places. Keep in mind every single one of those pillars for me is... Uh, goes back to what I said earlier as far as how these security priorities are so essential to enable this process of change uh, that the Arabs have to undergo. The fifth one is the degrading of violent extremist groups. You can call them whatever you want, terrorist groups, insurgent groups. Uh, the degrading of those groups is extremely important. I don't mention the word defeating because, once again, that's up to the Arabs themselves and the people of the region. Words like defeating are just too ambitious. They tackle the underlying causes of why these groups have emerged in the first place. I'm not sure the United States is in the position to do that, frankly. The best it could do is significantly degrade their military capabilities so that the hard work can actually be accomplished by the regional stakeholders themselves, tackle the narrative, the ideology, the, all the conditions that have led to, to the rise of these groups. Last but not least, the limiting of Iranian destabilizing influence in the region. Once again, I don't say roll back, I don't say stopping. Maybe a lot of people could disagree with me, and I'm not sure the United States really is in a position to roll back or stop Iranian destabilizing influence in the region. The United States is not there, it's just that simple. They're not physically present to perform that kind of mission. It's way too challenging. Iranians have way heavier investment in the region than the United States and far deeper commitment. The best the United States can do is try to limit that kind of influence by working with its regional partners. I'll make the last point, and then I'll invite the co-panelists. So with these six pillars of the containment strategy, I'll make a final point, which is basically, I think, the main contribution of the report. Even if the United States continues to try to extinguish fires at the end of the day, this is what containment is all about, it's still not sustainable, and it could be very costly down the road. So what I propose, and it's probably a point that Barry will uh, challenge me on because it might sound too ambitious, although we did try it in 1991 and it collapsed in 1995, is for the United States to try to at least help develop a new regional security architecture. Look, whether you like it or not, this thing is actually developing by itself. So the best thing we could do is try to shape it in ways that are in line with our own strategic interests. What does that regional security architecture look like well, I'm imagining something like, again, after Madrid in 1991, where um, Jim Baker and, of course, his boss, President Bush, uh, launched multilateral security talks, and there was an arms control uh, and security working group, Acres at the time. Talk about a range of security issues, right? Collapse in 95, we all know what happened. These Israelis and the Egyptians didn't agree on core security priorities: disarmament first, arms control second, sequencing issues. It didn't matter. it collapsed in '95. Look, a lot of those challenges that were in the past probably worse than today. I mean, we have a radically different regional environment today that in no way makes any of this conducive to arms control. But that's precisely why we should actually try to pursue those things. The Middle East, like no other region in the world, does not have any forum, formal or informal, to discuss this wide range of security issues. It's about time that at least there should be an effort to try to create that kind of architecture. Once again, it's forming already. We might as well shape it to our own uh, favor. I go about in length describing the challenges of creating something like this and how long it would take and what the United States' role would be beyond US leadership we definitely need another Jim Baker, uh, but what the United States should also be pursuing to encourage its partners to participate in such a, a forum to make them less vulnerable and not have them actually participate in a security forum where that actually sanctions Iranian or perceived Iranian dominance. If you're vulnerable, you're not going to participate in these talks. If you know that the Iranians are destabilizing your country and interfering in your own domestic politics, you probably have less of an incentive to sit down at the table and talk to them. But if you feel more emboldened and you feel more confident about your security partnership with the United States, and um, ideally, and I've argued in another report with Barry Pavel, if you ideally sign defense treaties with them, I, I don't say that lightly. I, again, describe it in length what the challenges and the benefits of those would be. If you do all those things, then the incentive to participate in such talks would be much higher for these partners. This is not an effort to gang up on Iran, or to uh, isolate it, or to make it feel even more insecure. This is a real, genuine opportunity to actually create something that is owned and uh, by the regional stakeholders, and that down the road, no matter how long it will take, that they would take care of their own security interests. Mind you, this is in no way an isolationist strategy. The United States will still be heavily committed but in a very different way than what has been thus far. Uh, With that, let me invite my co-panelists, and I'm sure we'll have a a lot of time discussing these uh, three strategies. Thank you very much.
2: We have such an amazing large group today that um, I want to say right from the outset, I hope we can have even with so many wonderful people here, as much of a conversation as possible. So we'll we'll follow the format of a few questions, but I want to get to, and I think everyone here on the stage wants to get as quickly as possible to what's on uh, everybody's mind here and and, and move to that phase. Uh, But it's an extraordinary day to actually be doing this, because we have the whole issue of deal or no deal with the Iran nuclear agreement. But we've also had the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, since 9.30 this morning, about three hours now, sitting in front of uh, Senator John McCain at the Senate Armed Services Committee answering his questions uh, about the Middle East, ISIS, how US strategy is going. And it was, uh, it was remarkable. The Chairman, uh, General Dempsey, who I think most people agree is one of the most respected Uh, members of the U.S. military for his candor. He opened his testimony, I just want to go over a couple of points he made because he, he talked about the fact, he said, the global security environment is as uncertain as I have seen. This is a man who has served decades in the U.S. military, several tours in Iraq. As uncertain as I have seen. He went on to say within the Middle East he saw three converging sets of complexity. First, governments are struggling for political legitimacy because they are not sufficiently pluralistic or not sufficiently accountable to their citizens. Many of those might be US allies. Second, the the centuries-old Sunni-Shia struggle has come to the fore. Weak states are less able to assert independence amongst the tug of war between sectarian regional powers. And third, of course, the competition between moderate and radical elements of Islam, ISIL, and others are filling that space. So in a way, I think General Dempsey sets a stage here. We might be talking about Iran, deal or no deal. We might be talking about the Middle East. We might be talking about the Islamic State. But in fact, we're probably here today talking about all elements of this Uh, you can't really parse it out these days. So let's start, at least as a starting point, with Iran, with Vienna, um, and talk about, if we can, I want everybody on on the panel here to weigh in. Deal or no deal, what is the impact in each case for the region but for US strategy in the Middle East, for the fight with ISIS, for a future Iranian relationship. So, Richard, let me start at your end. Deal or no deal? What are the implications?
3: Well, first of all, even if there is a deal, uh, it's a narrow, compartmentalized deal. You may say it's ambitious in the nuclear area, but it's essentially only in the nuclear area. Doesn't deal with delivery vehicles. Doesn't deal with the outreach of Iranian foreign policy. It basically doesn't deal with imperial Iran. It deals with the nuclear Iran. So, even if one quote unquote succeeds, one has to keep that in mind. Plus, in some ways, I actually think it fuels what Iran does in the region because of the resource transfer. So my guess is it's an enabling uh, mechanism for what Iran would try to do in the uh, region.
2: Because of the lifting of sanctions, they have more money. For
3: two reasons, because three reasons. Lifting of sanctions, more resources. Second of all, the status that it confers upon Iran. And three, the large nuclear capacity that Iran keeps. So. My own view is it probably exacerbates rather than in any way reduces the imperial dimension or challenge posed by uh, Iran. And even in the nuclear area, uh, my own view is that for 10 or 15 years, it helps manage the Iranian program. But after that, I think it actually in some ways creates more problems. And both with Iran in terms of the capacities it's allowed to then develop. Uh, the lack of constraint after 10 years on centrifuges, 15 years on uranium, and all throughout that period, I actually think, and this is mentioned in the paper, one of the principal strategic tasks that will befall to the United States is managing what I would call the Arab countries' desire to develop a nuclear option, to essentially hedge against what 10 or 15 years from now the Middle East would look like, even in the if one, quote unquote, succeeds again. And managing that nuclear option will become one of the, I believe, uh, one of the more time-consuming and difficult challenges facing not this administration so much, but its successor and its successors' successor. This now becomes a permanent part of uh, American statecraft in the in the region, and it will be extraordinarily demanding.
2: So, so Barry, following up on all of this, then, um, can the U.S. Let's say there is a deal. Can the U.S. even af- afford? May not be the right word, but could the U.S. even walk? O- could the U.S. realistically walk away from it and, and say, "No, you know, it's not a good deal. We're not going to go down this road."
4: Well, you're asking a question that's in, in part about U.S. domestic politics, right? So I, I think it would be um, very hard for the administration to to sign a deal that, in some way. Didn't match the expectations of at least the mainstream U.S. arms control community, right? I th- unless it matches those expectations, they can't sign it, right? Um, and if it does, I think they will sign it because, I guess, although R- Richard had a bit of a doer view of, of what you know what the United States might need to do and the problems it might face if there's a deal, it seems to me that the no-deal problems are even are even larger. Um, Talk to uh, us about that. Well, I mean, it, 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 if there is no deal, the United States has the diplomatic task of trying to sustain the sanctions regime, um, which is, involves a lot of energy and a lot of side payments. Uh, if the, Depending on how the deal crashes and burns, it may be hard to keep um, others involved in that. Um, the, depending on what the Iranians do, the, um, there's going to be constituencies here and abroad who you know, say it's time for a you know, military strike, for, for war. Um, uh, that war itself, if it were to happen, uh, is, is basically like, you know, it's, it's a huge roll of the dice. Um, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, even if you can maintain things more or less the way they are so that the Iranians don't move forward for a nuclear weapon, it seems to me that the uh, whatever concerns the you know, America's partners in the region might have about uh, under, under a deal, Iran's capabilities way down the road, Um, If there's no deal, then Iran's capabilities even sooner begin to matter, right? So that the pressures for our our partners to start looking around for some other nuclear ace in the hole of their own, it seems to me to be even higher if there's no deal. So no deal does not look like a particularly good good situation um, uh, from our point of view. And uh, I don't think it even really looks like a good situation from their point of view, with one exception. And that is that... um, uh, all of our partners in the region, and interestingly, I think this is where the Israelis and many of the Arab states agree, seem to just feel more comfortable if the United States has sustained bad relations with Iran. That makes them feel good. And I think there's a, there is a great fear that um, if, if there's a deal, Iran-U.S. relations will get better. Now, no one can predict how much better they would get, and for all the reasons that have been discussed, they, they can't go swimmingly because the Iranians have their own interests in the region, and we have ours, and they're going to continue to clash.
2: You know, one of the things Bill, that I think I'm hearing here is deal or no deal, um, you might have more, you could have a scenario of some increased instability in the Middle East as regional nations, some US partners, try and go their own way on a nuclear program because they will be, they will feel uncertain what's coming 15 years down the road if there is a deal and they will feel uncertain what might be coming sooner if there is no deal. So how do you get out of that?
1: Well, it's not just the nuclear programs. I mean, uh, Richard mentioned, and I mentioned in the report as well, it's just they're going to hedge their bets, and there's going to be- Either way. I think so. I mean, the, the, (coughs) the bottom line of it all is not just what Iran is doing. It's just the fact that they are so concerned about the current state and the future of the relationship with the United States. Had that been intact, There have been no concerns about that. I think that the partners will be far less uh, concerned about what what Iran is doing. It's just that there's so much uncertainty in that relationship, and even mistrust, and there's no secret about that, that uh, the uh, Iran challenge as a whole is amplified. Um, You know, the Saudis don't miss an opportunity to warn the entire world that they will also start their own nuclear programs. I think that scientists and Policy analysts have disagreements about the feasibility of such an option, uh, but, but they have been saying it for a very long time now. And so I'm very much concerned about nuclear proliferation, obviously, uh, but also about this, this developing set of security dilemmas in the region because they will be hedging their bets. So greater insecurity is certainly an option. And as Richard said, what the deal does, if we do finalize one, is that would drastically reduce the risk of proliferation other than that it really doesn't address the other issues.
4: Look, the United States has to ask what's in its interest, right? I mean, often these conversations about the Middle East, you lie the difference the potential difference between America's national interest and the interests of those in the region. It seems to me that the American national interest in having a deal is pretty high, right? And it may be that Those in the region have cross-cutting interests, but Americans have to consider their own, right? Now, the fact is that, as I said, I think the regional actors are happier if the United States is simply in a sustained across-the-board competition with Iran. It just happens to not be in our interest, right? So the Americans have to choose. Can I just say two points of that? One is, obviously,
3: the desirability of a deal depends upon some of the details which we don't yet uh, know, That's true. but second of all, no one in this room or beyond should think that a deal in any way resolves the problem. This is not a problem to be resolved. This is a condition to be managed, with or without a diplomatic outcome, this week, next month, next year. You're going to have elements of an Iranian nuclear program that are gonna remain intact. You're gonna have longer term options for the Iranian nuclear program after 10 or 15 years if the deal is consummated. You're going to have nuclear activities uh, in the region, in some cases carried out by governments whose stability, shall we say, is uncertain. So you're saying, whether you have it or not, if I'm right and the Middle East is facing uh, something like a 30 years war, uh, a period of prolonged multi-decade stability, with or without an Iranian nuclear agreement, that, that larger overlay is going to remain the case. So this does not solve the Iranian nuclear problem it does not solve the re- questions of regional stability. It's a fair question to ask which way are you worse off or which way are you better off if you want to be an optimist. And, and we, can d- we can discuss that. Though again, I think it depends upon certain aspects of the agreement, how well we manage the reactions of locals, and what actual impact it has on Iranian foreign policy. So the unknowns are, uh, are, are, are considerable here. But the one thing I think it's safe to assume is with or without a deal, we continue to have a nuclear challenge and an Iranian challenge.
1: Hello. Just a very quick disagreement with Barry. I think it's uh, not in the interest of those partners and pretty much anybody in the region to be continuously engaged in perpetual conflict with the Iranians in competition. I don't think that's a fair assessment. Uh, A lot of those countries rely on investments that require peace and stability. Uh, There's nothing unusual about what these countries desire, just like any other country. Uh, The devil's in the details, for sure, as far as the Iran nuclear deal. But also, I think the onus is also on the partners to define what a good deal is, short of completely removing the capabilities of Iran to enrich uranium. Uh, That's not realistic anymore. That, whether we like it or not, they'll still have that capability. So it's up to them to define what is a good deal. For now, it's a little bit unclear, frankly.
2: Well, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, please.
3: I actually think it's, we're beyond that point, because this is, I think you know, I'll just speak for myself. This is not the deal, If the sort of deal that has been talked about actually is consummated that I would have advocated being negotiated, but it is the only deal that might exist. Uh, so you have to, so it's a different debate already. I would, you know, I would not have advocated getting to this point. We're at this point, and then I think Barry made the correct judgment, which is if it does unravel, a lot depends upon who is perceived to be the cause of the unraveling. You're in a very different situation with sanctions maintenance if the unraveling is seen to be a made in America problem, as opposed to the Iranians keep moving the goalposts and say, well, we want to have arms sales now. If that's the situation, then it actually isn't that hard to maintain most of the sanctions if the Iranians are perceived widely, particularly by the Europeans, to be at fault. If, however, we're the ones who are perceived to be responsible, then I think it it does exacerbate the sanctions um, maintenance, uh, maintenance challenge.
2: Not to take it too global, but I keep wondering if you can, and I I understand we're having a, the US is having a, and the allies are having a fairly narrow set of discussions with the Iranians on this nuclear issue. But Iran's broader agenda, its involvement with backing the Houthis, backing certain Shia elements in Iran, uh, working in Afghanistan, Hamas, Hezbollah, all of their regional desires just wondering if that doesn't need to have a little more attention as this deal goes forward. Because of what you were saying, Richard, if it, if it happens, Iran gets more resources. It has more ability to engage in this broad set of activities. Now it wants a conventional arms embargo lifted. It puts it right back into the both open and uh, continuing illicit arms trade. Has the US paid enough attention to this problem and the Islamic State also being out there, which certainly has some impact on this broader issue that we come back to with Bilal of a Middle East security architecture?
1: Well, there's a growing chorus in US government basically uh, discussing all these issues, and specifically Iran's influence in the region. former director of the CIA, the current director of the CIA, the current Secretary of Defense, a bunch of congressmen, every single one of them describing this influence of Iran that is making all those security challenges far worse. Now, the bad news is that this administration has not really committed to actually addressing this challenge. It's not that it's not a U.S. concern, it is, but for reasons that I just don't understand, I have yet to see a real commitment to actually addressing Iran's influence. Uh, this might have been a topic of conversation in Vienna, but I, but I suspect that it wasn't. Likely not,
2: Richard. My, my guess oh,
1: is,
4: my, my guess is, you know, I'm going I'm going to sort of do what I do here, which is, I, I don't think the Iranian regional challenge amounts to much. Um, If you look at the places that people worry about and you go down the list, most of the places where Iran has had a chance to exercise any influence at all are are places that were deeply riven internally by problems that were not of the Iranians' creation. And some of the places where people are the most upset are places where the Iranians are actually backing... Uh, sides that actually appear not to be doing so well. So the relationship with Assad goes back many, many years. Uh, the relationship is stronger, but that's because Assad is weaker. The relationship with his goes back many, many years. There's nothing really new about this. And I don't think you can argue that his Bala per se is getting a lot stronger. Um, certainly they're learning new tricks by being involved in the Syrian war, but they're also taking fairly serious casualties. Um, it's, you know, when, when, the Yemen, when the Yemen Civil War started, at least for the first month or two, it was fairly customary in American media coverage to remind the reader that though the Houthis were, were Shia, right, that the Houthis were not creatures of Iran. This war was not the creature of Iran, right? And gradually over the last, you know, as time passed, American media stopped adding the little parenthetical statement. And now we discuss Yemen as if it was something that was created by Iran. It's not something that was created by Iran. Iran may gain some benefits from this. And when you look around this, does this look like Iranian geopolitical momentum, right? Where the Iranian influence and Iranian power and Iranian resources are expanding? because of all this, Iran is stuck having, in some sense, to back the weaker parties. They're Persian among Arabs, they're big among small, right, they're Shia among Sunni. So uh, my guess is that if you could get people in the administration in a quiet room where there were no reporters present, they would kind of admit that they're not that exercised about this problem. The reason they have to talk about it now is because allies in the region have made such a big deal about it, and are trying to use it as a way to kill this arms control agreement. So I just don't think it's that big a deal.
2: Richard, do you think, by the me, way, if there's that meeting, we'll be putting By the way, I'm, Rich, I'm Richard
4: straight man here, so <laughs> <laughs> he gave me 50 bucks. I'll uh, say one or two. I'll say two things.
3: Uh, we, don't, we don't disagree 100 percent, only 90 percent. The uh, one is um, on the regional security system. Uh, it's, it seems to me it's, at best, wildly premature. In order to create security systems, you need two things. You need balances of power, and you need a shared concept of legitimacy. You have neither in the Middle East. You're not going to have either in the Middle East. A, you know, I'm all in favor of make work for diplomats, but this is wildly premature. And sh- one day, maybe we'll get to the point where it's on the agenda. We're not there now. We're not going to be there anytime soon. Uh, I actually think there are bigger problems than than Iran in the region. I would say ISIS is is among them. I'm more concerned about the threat that ISIS poses than uh, the geopolitical threat posed by uh, Iran. It's been pushed back in Bahrain. I think the Saudis overreacted in Yemen to the detriment of Saudi Arabia's own security. I think the Saudis have got to be very careful. Uh, They haven't, I actually think they've overreached, and I think the potential for blowback in the kingdom itself is significant. And they had better, I think, focus their energies on the challenge that ISIS is going to pose to them directly rather than Iran indirectly. So I just think well, it's a strategic error
2: Let me stop on, you the, there. And, on the and part of the Saudis. Let, before we go to questions from the audience, let's go down the line starting with Bilal on this very point of ISIS. Can, Should ISIS, when you listen to the administration, it sort of seems to be a separate issue. You have ISIS, again, ISIS, Middle East security, and the Iran nuclear deal. I come back to the point can these really be thought of as three separate issues at this point? What should Middle East peace be and its security architecture be concerned about if you take Richard's point that ISIS is the bigger problem? So, what part of ISIS do we need to be the most concerned about? What threat do they pose? We know if they're social media, we know if they're lone wolf appeal. We know if they're barbaric videos, but bottom line, the security threat that they pose to this Middle East architecture that we're talking about. Bilal, let me start with you and let's go down the line.
1: Well, well, if the we is the United States, obviously it's the uh, ability of this group to target the homeland. I think most assessments today would tell you that this is um, not really a a direct and imminent threat. not just an issue of capabilities, but probably also an issue of priorities and strategy. They're not really looking at the United States for now. Uh, May happen down the road, they may change the strategy and look at the United States as, you know, the next big target, as the far enemy. Not really sure what the ideology within the group is for now. They probably don't speak with the same voice either. Uh, In terms of the Middle East, I mean, obviously it is you know, this is uh, way too close to home for the governments in the region. Uh, ISIS is, you know, in many ways a byproduct of the, as I described earlier, the, the ails of the Arab state system. Uh, this political decay for a very long time, the economic mismanagement, uh, the the corrupt nature of those governments. I mean, it's it's uh, that's what led to ISIS in many ways. It's not just obviously a, a consequence of AQI, even though it did form from that organization, uh, and this might be a long process throughout the 21st century to figure out how to actually root out this organization. It's not just the degrading of the organization. That has to happen first, obviously. And we're not even good at that, I by the way. Uh, you know, you you consult most assessment in terms of what the control they have over territory in Iraq and Syria. It's not that different from a year ago. Yeah. Despite the massive sorties, despite the, the firepower, Uh, despite all the military attempts to degrade this organization. It's pretty much is the same where it is Well, that also gets
2: to the point of just how much of a threat, and one could debate it endlessly, they truly are. They have gained a certain level of territory. They now are looking at North Africa as a major recruiting area. But Barry, what is your sense of exactly the threat that they do pose? And what do we need to worry about the most in terms of these broader issues and their involvement in in the
4: region? Well, Blal makes a good point in that, um, at least for now, and unfortunately, ISIL's ambitions to engage in terrorism beyond the region seem to be low. Um, that said, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, the the ideological ingredients of them changing their views at some time are are there, right? And they do have, you know, what what in some ways is a nice you know, consolidated base upon which to build that. Um, the, I think the more pressing problems with, with ISIS is, is that um, where they meet weakness, they, they grab, right? They, they, they are of an expansionist nature. Um, and also, they seem to have, you know, put together a, a kind of an ideological stew that's attractive to some groups in the Arab world. So. They 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 find they find uh, co-conspirators or fellow travelers or whatever in other countries who suddenly raise the ISIL flag, but it's more than just ideological affinity. Money and weapons and skills seem to rattle around, so they seem to have some subversive capability. So some capability to simply grab the old-fashioned way, some capability to subvert, and in the future, based on this base, maybe even some capability or interest in going beyond the region. Now for all these regions, um, it's a group that bears watching, but all of the problems in that part of the world that the Americans have confronted in the past and that the region confronts, create obstacles to dealing with this group in a way that says, let's extirpate it, let's eliminate it, let's develop it out of existence, let's annihilate it. These are all fantasies. These are all things that are very, very costly to even attempt, much less much less to achieve. So what can you do? Well, I mean, you know, you can spy on it, uh, and that's one thing we have to, you know, con- we have to continue to do. Um, you can try and contain it as best you can. Where they meet coherent groups that are willing to fight, those groups should always find a friend in the United States. It could be money, it could be rifles, it could be the odd airstrike, whatever it is, little bits of resources to help shore those up. But there are other places where it's just very hard for us to do anything. And this is where the the tension in Saudi Arabia's behavior becomes really, um, I'd I'd say, worrisome. right? Because of all the projects that the Saudis are working on today, the anti-ISIL project seems to get the least Saudi attention, at least for me looking at it from afar. And I would have thought that Saudi Arabia is a country that's in ISIL's subversion gun sites. Right, so I would, I'm sort of surprised that, not surprised, but I guess a, a, a little befuddled by the immense energy going into Yemen, right, and what appears to be the minimal energy into going into the, into the struggle against ISIL.
2: Richard, do you think that, you've talked a lot about these, all these issues being things you can manage but not solve. I guess that's part of the question with ISIS. For a number of years, are we simply going to be managing it?
3: Yeah, if we're lucky. That's the goal. I mean, you're not, again, language matters. And when people, I think there's a consensus up here, when you use words like destroy or eradicate, all you're doing is setting yourself up to failure because you're not going to destroy or eradicate. What you want to do is change the momentum. ISIS is to some extent a momentum play. It's a big part of their appeal is that for once you have a Sunni based outfit that, that seems to be on the march. So what we've got to do first and foremost, I think, is change that narrative, uh, deal them some military setbacks, create a, a slightly different momentum. But they're going to they're be around. They've got qualities that are state-like, network-like, organization-like, movement-like. So th- that suggests to me quite a lot of resilience. This, this is an organization that has uh, stickiness or traction. Uh, I, the place that I worry, you know, I, 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 so I sort of say, okay, well, you go after them, you try to get them on their heels a bit, you try to, if the Turks would play a more helpful role, that would help, obviously, when it comes to uh, recruiting. You want to help Jordan, among other places, deal with the refugee and other burdens so they're not as vulnerable. But I think Barry's point is exactly right. If you're a group that calls yourself the Islamic State or the Caliphate, the one thing you can't ultimately live with is another country that controls Mecca and Medina. It's a question of when and not if their priority becomes Saudi Arabia. Right now, the Saudi st- strategy, to the extent one is discernible, is far more focused on Iran or what they perceive to be manifestations of either of Iranian power, either in the neighbourhood, say in Yemen, or at home. And uh, I actually think that's a misallocation of resources. I would focus much more on the kingdom itself as a potential both target in the traditional sense, but also the subversive thing. Because ISIS uh, stimulates and it inspires, and that's something the Saudis should worry about. So,
2: does any president, Democrat or Republican, it may not, in a national security sense, be practical to go out there and say, "We're going to destroy ISIS," but politically, can a president do any say anything short of that? Sure.
3: Again, well, you look. What, why, this is we're in an era in which non-state actors are part and parcel of international relations. Some of them are wonderfully benign. Nobody wants to eliminate the Gates Foundation. But there are non-state actors that are anything but benign And groups like you know, the Islamic State and Nusra and any other number of pirate outfits and gangs and the rest fall into that. We're not going to eliminate. What we've got to do is, wherever we can, set them back. We've got to reduce our vulnerability uh, to them, build resilience in our societies, focus intelligence resources on them, and focus capacities against them. Uh, but I think presidents can can level with the American people, and presidents can explain the nature of these, and we, we've done that historically. And this is simply part now of the security challenge we, we face. We have classic challenges in certain powerful states, and we have, if you will, latter day, anything but classic challenges to our security. And now we have issues that are things that don't even fit into either, say global issues, whether it's what to do about cyber or what to do about climate. So you've got an array of security challenges, but sure, you can you can explain those things.
2: So perhaps as, and then we'll go to questions now, but perhaps as we go into a presidential election season, uh, the question for many of these candidates who might still choose to use Words like victory or defeat um, is to explain themselves about this because victory or, I mean, are victory and defeat outmoded terms at this point?
1: Pretty much given the nature of the threat we're facing.
4: Uh, I, I, I would go in better. I mean, we've, this conversation we're having is sort of in a region. It's a big region, but we're having right. a kind of a regional conversation. Um, but I, I, you know, R- Richard alluded to things that are going on in the world. I, I think. Uh, um, given the way people tend to think about things you know, in, inside the beltway, you know, if you look out to the world, you'd have to say that there's more fires than there are fire engines. And that's probably gonna remain the case. And this has to do with um, you know, two big processes that have been happening in the world for certainly since the Cold War ended and maybe longer. And one is the economic and by, by, by inclusion, military development of other powers. Uh, we, we we lived in a bipolar world during the Cold War we had a brief unipolar moment something else is happening hard to put a ter- term on it but I think of it as emerging multipolarity uh, multiple players in the world which with power that can get in your way you either need their help or they can get in your way and the, the second thing that's happening is and, and you see it in the kind of the you know, the cleverness of our so-called asymmetrical adversaries, like ISIL or, or like Al-Qaeda. Um, there's just a diffusion of technical skill in the world, and people can just, you know, they can, they can throw grit in your gears. I mean, I, I, I don't swear by the analysis, but, you know, the Congressional Research Service periodically assesses the costs of past U.S. wars and tries to normalize them all to current dollars, and the United States spent as much to bring the Iraq war to a stalemate as we did to bring the Vietnam war to a stalemate. Now how the hell is that possible, right? How is that possible? I mean, the adversary in the Vietnam war had open charge accounts in the arsenals of the Soviet Union, the arsenals of China. They had big air defense system. They shot down thousands of American airplanes, thousands of American helicopters. The war in Iraq was very different. The adversary had no great power backer, really no middle power backer. Um, We lost very few aircraft, and yet we spent all this money in real bucks. So the question is, how is that possible? And it has to do in part with, uh, with what I think to be the, f- the fact that the, the adversaries are getting more clever. And second of all, I think if we look inside ourselves, um, I think you'll find that politicians believe that the interest of the American people in these projects is not that high. And therefore, vast sums of money are spent to avoid American casualties, which is a good thing. I have many friends in the American military. I'm glad they've avoided these casualties. But nevertheless, it means that the cost of prosecuting these kinds of wars is gonna be very, very high. So given that world, which the National Intelligence Council calls the diffusion of power, given that world, The the leaders of the United States just have to get used to saying things like, we'll contain, we'll deter, we'll surround. I I think everybody in
2: this room remembers when Secretary Gates uh, left the Pentagon, some of his final words were about the follies of large land warfare in the future. Um, I I don't want to go too long, so I want to start hearing some questions. Can I make a final point on that? I was just gonna say, and if you're confused enough, be sure to read Bilal's paper because it provides a really interesting roadmap and signposts to framing some of your own thinking about all of these. So go online and read it
1: below. Just just a couple of points. One on Saudi, because I was a little bit uncomfortable with the uh, notion that the Saudis are taking the ISIS threat very casually, and they're mostly focused on Iran. That's true, but it's not true that they're not concerned about the ISIS threat. Why do I know that? Because I talked to Saudi officials. And the fact of the matter is 2004, 2006, one of the biggest counterterrorism campaigns the region has seen was launched by Riyadh against, at the time, Osama bin Laden and his uh, people in the kingdom. They are very much concerned. Should they be allocating more resources? Probably. But they have undergone some internal changes to be better equipped to handle that challenge. So they're not looking at this very casually. and they're very Within the kingdom. Serious. Okay. Final All right. point, if you don't mind. Uh, I'll be the first to agree with Richard that it's wildly premature to actually discuss a regional security system Even though I'm the one advocating for it which is why I precisely go and land discussing what needs to be done to actually get there And the uh, what the United States ought to be doing balance of power is a very uh, uh, Important concept and probably a precondition. I would agree with Richard to get there But balance of power is very hard to define in that region, so I would probably use strategic symmetry, which is why I very specifically say the United States should be solidifying its security partnerships with uh, the Gulf States and Israel and the Egyptians in order for them to feel more confident to enter into such a forum, whether it's formal or informal. As I mentioned earlier, this thing is developing before our own eyes, whether we like it or not. So we might as well shape it towards our own Let me just own push bike. back in Let, two ways. All, all right. And
3: quickly. then I really want to get to some questions. <laughs> One is that Last word, you've got Richard. a problem with partners there. The idea that you're going to try to erect a long-term regional security system with a partner like Egypt, that assumes you're going to have a stable partner called Egypt. I hope you do. I wouldn't bet the the farm on it. More important than balance of power is a consensus on what constitutes legitimacy. If you go back and read sort of Henry Kissinger's early, early writings about regional and global orders, you have to have some shared views about what are the rules. What is the outcome? What are the processes by which international, in this case, regional politics are conducted? I would simply say in the Middle East, you have virtually no consensus whatsoever on what are to be the rules of international relations in the, in the region. There's no shared sense of principles, rules. So to start talking about institutions and arrangements, to me, puts the cart uh, way, way, way in front of the horse. It just is not a useful. And yeah, I don't find it a useful intellectual, much less diplomatic exercise.
2: All right, let's get to some questions. Everybody, uh, be sure to tell us who you are. So we know many of you, but probably not everyone in the room. Sir, may I begin with you?
5: Uh, Luqman Faile, Iraqi ambassador. As somebody from the region and listening to you guys, I do get worried from what I hear today, or I'm from more or the less too
1: by the way.
5: I know, but uh, you're reflecting the U.S. perspective on things. I'm looking at the region perspective, obviously. What I hear from you guys is more or less saying that we will carry on being in a reactionary mode. We do not contain the element of the peripherals of the region so that we can have a proactive issue. Um, I, I take that on board. I think that's the right approach, more, more or less, specifically if the U.S. doesn't want to project its power as much as it used to do historically, or it has fears about its own soldiers and so on, as is that's taking place in Iraq, for example. What I'm also don't, I'm not hearing a lot is you need a lot of dialogue. I think Richard talked about it lastly. You need a lot of internal dialogue in the region, and the U.S. to facilitate for that dialogue. I'm not talking about projection of power in a, in a military sense. Talking about dialogue in a sense of finding commonalities in the region. Otherwise, you will be carrying on in a reactionary mode. And otherwise, let me give you a simple example. In Yemen, the pain, the tolerance of pain in the Houthis, if you miscalculate that, then unfortunately, you will not be able to contain that problem. And elsewhere in Iraq and elsewhere in other areas, we talked about in Hezbollah and others as well. I think it's important for the US to participate in providing an environment for a dialogue to find commonalities and take it from there. Otherwise, we will carry on having this discussion decades from now.
3: I actually agree. I actually, one of the, what I would avoid is a quote unquote a regional dialogue, but I think we ought to have specific problem dialogues. I would think a Syria dialogue is something we've got to have and we ought to invite the Iranians and the Russians to the table. They have influence there, let's see. Afghanistan. We obviously need a dialogue there with uh, various uh, parties. So there's a, there's almost not a problem in the region. I mean, places with ISIS, you don't inv- you don't involve them in the dialogue, but you could involve again some of the, uh, some other groups and some other neighbors. Uh, I, I think we ought to have a large diplomatic uh, effort uh, c- because that's one of the, it, it. Just happens to be one of the tools of national uh, security.
2: Let's get to some more questions, sir. Please, I think there's a microphone coming
6: to you. I'm very happy to be here and hear you, Mr. Haas, and Mr. Barry, you young person. I'm having (laughs) trouble hearing you, though. My name is Hassan. I was born in uh, Tehran, the uh, capital of uh, uh, Islamic Republic of Iran. I have three questions. Number one, we talk about Middle East. I'd like to know which countries are considered to be part of the Middle East. That's number one. Number two is when we say that if uh, Iran uh, continues on a, a path to learn about the atomic use of energy, then the other neighbors would like to do the same thing. And I'd like to know which neighbors are these that they're going to do that. Number two. Number three, there is a 15-year freeze uh, is proposed for the program of uh, uh, the Iranian nuclear program. And I just want to know that if the freeze that has been proposed, uh, is it like uh, you just uh, just want to use an example. I'm sorry to make it better. We had, after a few years, we had a triple crown winner. Is a horse that did all the uh, races and won all the crowns. Now we come to the owner of the horse, say, look, you've got to keep their horse in your barn. Don't feed him. Don't water him. After 15 years, he can come out and race again. So after 15 years, what do you have? A dead horse. Iranians are not stupid. They know this. They're not going to accept such a things. So thank you for listening to me. Bilal, let me get, just, have I'll you... I'll just
1: define the Middle sure. East as far as I'm concerned. Members of the Arab League, Israel... Turkey, Iran, if you want to go greater release, you probably include Pakistan, Afghanistan.
3: The, uh, on the last thing, there are different uh, aspects of the draft agreement. Centrifuge limits would be on certain numbers and generations for a decade. Uranium, certain amounts of certain quality of enrichment for 15 years. Mining facilities for 25 years. But there's other things that can go on. Uh, after During all that time, certain types of uh, research and development can take place after ten years it 's not clear what if any centrifuge limits are still in place after fifteen years it 's not clear what if any uranium limits are uh, in place so that i 'm not quite sure your, your horse in the barn metaphor lost me uh, <laughs> but again uh, this but is perhaps a dynamic
2: thinking about. But it's a dynamic
3: <laughs> process, even though there are certain plateaus that are set. It is a it is not a total freeze on activity, and at various state lines, it's not a freeze on capacity.
2: Barbara.
5: Uh, Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Um, I wanted to ask you our, our esteemed panelists to address the issue of the fact that um, the most reliable boots on the ground now in terms of the fight against uh, the Islamic State are Arab Shia, uh, Iran in some cases, and Kurds. Uh, How do you put that together, Bilal, with your, your strategy of shoring up relations with countries like Saudi Arabia, even having defense treaties with them, when we can't even get a NATO ally, Turkey, to really uh, operate strongly against these uh, Sunni extremist groups. Thanks. Well,
1: guess, that's, you want to go first? Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Bert. No,
4: I, I would, <laughs> I, I would go back to what this gentleman said. We, we seem to be in a reactive mode. Um, I I actually think that that that's about all you can do. right? In other words. It, 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 uh, it's hard to go through a whole exegesis of U.S. interests and, and what they are in the, re- in, in the region, but to the extent that um, dealing with ISIL is a U.S. interest, I think the way that we have to deal with it is um, is, is small-r realism, and I think we need to find our allies where we find them, find opponents to ISIS when we find them, and there are countries that maybe are adversaries on one issue, that on the ISIL problem end up being tacit allies, and... Sometimes we'll have to stand up publicly and claim that this is not the case. But I think uh, a a Martian political scientist would say this is what the ISIL coalition, anti-ISIL coalition, looks like. And I I would throw Assad into that coalition, even though the the Syrian regime is only intermittently fighting this group versus that group. um, There are longer-term problems that we have to face. You know, if you weaken ISIL, maybe you strengthen Al Qaeda. You weaken Al-Qaeda, you strengthen ISIL. Again, this, is, this calls for you know, maneuver, right? So y- you have to free yourself of any romantic commitments to any particular actors in the region and go back and zero-base America's interests, um, calibrate what the ISIL problem is, and then figure out where you can cobble together the bits and pieces of a reactionary <laughs> force to kind of contain and degrade. I-, I don't think you could do much better than that.
3: Yeah, I would give a slightly different uh, answer. I think we've got a real problem though, which is, in Iraq, Ambassador and I are old colleagues, so uh, don't, don't hate me for what I'm going to say, sir. Uh, but I do think the emphasis on the, Sh- the Shia militia, uh, I can't do better than quote Steve Cole here, but using the Shia militia to take <laughs> on ISIS is like using gasoline to put out a fire. I think uh, the means work against the end. So I think we've got a real problem there. And I think one of the strategic choices the United States is going to have to make is whether we continue to essentially work our Iraq policy through the government of Baghdad, and or whether we have a more direct and independent line towards both the Kurds and the, the Sunni Arabs in the West, and similarly whether we continue to show a certain deference to Turkey when it comes to our our Kurdish policy. So you know, that that's you know for years the United States essentially deferred to the nation states that existed and the kurds uh were not the principal partner of the united states i think one of the questions is whether we now whether that's the policy we should uh continue second of all i do think we've got to find a ground partner in syria the sunni arab states have been wildly disappointing wildly disappointing to throw in a couple of aircraft is the one thing we don't need What we need are ground soldiers. Not one of the Sunni states has been willing to to do that. It's been a profound disappointment. But I don't think the answer is getting close to Mr. Assad. Again, I think that fuels fuels the fire. So that's where I come back to diplomacy. I really do think coming up with some sort of a mechanism to move to oppose Bashar al-Assad political (coughs) dispensation in Syria has got to be our priority.
2: I want to go to this gentleman and then we have about 10 to 15 minutes left, so after you sir, I want to go way in the back of the room and make sure we move beyond the first few rows. But we'll, we'll move it along here so we get as many people.
7: Uh, I'm in. Randall Doyle at uh, Georgetown University. A couple of issues that have not been addressed so far, geography and self-governance. And I'd like to ask all three gentlemen, as you know, a lot of the boundaries and countries that were created after World War One, and many Middle Eastern uh, analysts, reporters like Robert Fisco for us say there's a real possibility that some of these states like Iraq and Syria may be broken up into multiple states. If that occurs, if that occurs, would that would the United States be willing to accept that new reality? Because it seems like there, there is a process of fragmentation taking place in the region. Number two, self-governance. After World War II, as you know, when the United States was trying to solidify its situation in East Asia we accepted less than Jeffersonian democracy. We accepted one-party uh, governments in Japan, one-party governments in Singapore, authoritarian governments in South Korea and Taiwan, and in the end, they all became democracies, but you know, but it took a process to kind of get there. Would we show the same latitude or flexibility in the Middle East if, if governments emerged that created stability, but they weren't exactly what the United States wanted? Would we be willing to accept that?
3: Well, my own view is that Mr. Rand and Mr. McNally are on life support. <laughs> uh, along with Messrs. Sykes, and Pico. Uh now I don't know how long it's going to take to work out. I don't know what the final arrangement's going to look like. Again, it's the reason I think you can't talk about regional security arrangements, because the, the map's going to change. There's nothing sacrosanct about borders, and already the Syrian-Iraqi border is a, is a, a non-entity, if, if you will so i don't know how long it's going to take i don't know what the out but at some point <coughs> diplomacy can largely recognize that and maybe lock it in and that becomes a new basis for an order but i think we are literally decades away and your second point, and i have a hunch barry would agree uh first of all we already are if you look at u.s policy towards egypt that uh shall we say reflects a bit of uh, realism critics might say cynicism whatever but i and the fact that the u s is working as closely as it is with the GCC states, none of them shall we say is a Jeffersonian democracy, so I, I think that' simply reality has returned a little bit to America and, probably, and I you know I'm, I yield to no one in my realism uh, I would say though, I do think there's a question about Egypt and whether the Egyptian definition of realism goes too far, and I, you know maybe there's probably two people out here who know more than I do, but whether you have, because some of the recent violence raises the question of whether Egypt is on a trajectory that's stable, or by whether, whether by defining the opposition in such broad terms, the Egyptians are setting themselves up for a violent future. And I, I simply put, I'm not enough of an expert, but I, I put that out there as a real source of concern.
1: Barry,
2: below, and then we'll move to the back of the room.
1: Why don't you go first? I mean, and what you describe is already happening, as you mentioned. I mean, self-governance is happening in Syria already. Uh, and surprisingly, actually, and very well managed uh, by a number of uh, <clears throat> rebels' soft or hard partition in Iraq. I'm not sure that there is much that the United States... This conversation is being had, actually, in the government. I, I can guarantee you that, because um, it's, it's also an old issue as far as Iraq is concerned. Um, I remember even Senator Biden even advocating for soft partition in Iraq. Uh, but this is a conversation that we have by the... The Iraqis themselves and what is the best form of government that they should have. A good friend of mine, your former student, Barry, Ken Pollock, has a terrific treatment of this issue as far as what would work best uh, for the United States in Iraq, whether it's soft or hard partition. But ultimately, it's a decision for the Iraqis themselves. Barry? Uh, I would oh, go for a federal. <laughs> I would go for a federal system, but we, you and I can talk about it after.
4: Well, I, I just, I guess I find it I don't know, in some sense, you know, beside the point for us to sit here in this room and redraw maps in our heads or rewrite constitutions in our heads. Uh, I think Bilal's base point that he opened with when he did his opening remarks that, that you know, significant change has to come from the region. Um, uh, you know, Richard and I can play after you, Realist Alphonse, for a while, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't fetishize um, you know, the United States paying no attention to the internal governance of states. I just think that it's very hard for us to have much positive impact. I I think the Egyptian regime has shot itself in the foot and opened its veins, and, and they're on their way to something really terrible, because this crowd cannot entertain ideas about political inclusion. A political inclusion in rapidly changing societies is difficult, it's also risky. But across this region, there's, you know, there's there doesn't seem to be enough, of, uh, enough sense in elites that the demand for participation is there and people are going to find somebody to be their paladin in their demands for the participation. And if that turns out to be the most extreme people in the region, such as ISIL and al-Qaeda, then they may sign up with them, right? So the regimes, in their own interest, should be thinking about how they open up right now we can't tell them how to do it we can't manage it we have no blueprint we don't understand it all we can say is you know at some point we are not going to be sending you the parts for the tanks to go into your public squares and kill your people with because it just looks bad for us it just makes us look bad well, that's and, we, a gri- and, we, and we and we and we just and we just don't want to we just don't want to look bad now on the, G, the G, you know, to their people right now on on the again on the geographic partition uh you know, soft hard um these boundaries are going to float. I mean, you wouldn't want to sort of say today, well, we can see the outlines of a Sunni regime, that would, a Sunni state that would span Iraq and Syria. Well, you don't want to say you see that because you're saying you see the outlines of an ISIL state, right? This, again, you're legitimating the other side. At the same time, if it's problematical to contain um, ISIL by sending a weapon to the Kurds by way of Baghdad so somebody in Baghdad can take their, arms cut, or their money cut, before it goes, then sneak around them, right? And you don't, we, we don't have to ha- announce any ringing principles. We should just be doing what, what makes sense. Because right now, trying to generate internal or external architectures, it's, I, I, I don't see how they can do it, and I don't see how we can do it. it, it you know, I said this earlier, we, we need to sit down and zero base our interests on a white sheet of paper. which I don't think we've done. I mean, I I find this whole conversation to be strangely U.S. interest-free.
2: Well, I know we have some (laughs) questions in the back and I wanna get everybody to, we just have a few minutes left. I know I saw some hands in the back. Ma'am, way back there.
8: Thank you, Melissa Hirsch, Risk Analyst. So, Saudi Arabia just basically agreed to inject $10 billion in FDI into Russia. Russia has also agreed to inject FDI as well as build nuclear power plants in Egypt. Uh, And I'm pro-nuclear power, so I I just have a question for the panel here. Also, uh, Russia has proposed to build nuclear power plants in Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, what have you. What, What, if any, possibility is there for Russia and the US to work together, and speaking, I guess, to what Richard was saying a little bit more on the diplomacy front, to actually addressing some of the containment issues uh, that you're talking about. Not just having it be rhetoric, but actually engaging in business practices, ensuring that these are state-run operations and not overrun by non-governmental influences.
3: Well, if you're right, I sure hope we're talking to the Russians by the, about the terms under which nuclear facilities would be constructed and operated. Uh, now, Look, we had the conversation years ago about Boucher and things like that, so it's not inconceivable that we could reach some arrangements. The Russians have a self-interest in making sure that, among other things, nuclear materials don't get into the hands of Chechnyans who are doing you know, with, you know, this version of terrorist tourism in places like Syria. So they've got, they've got to be mindful, shall we say, of the dangers and sprinkling around these plants or around the region. But yeah, we should be, what we've got to do is learn how to, even though we disagree profoundly with the Russians about Ukraine, we can't put the entire relationship in the penalty box. And we've got to be able to talk with and to the Russians about Afghanistan, about Syria, and about these other uh, issues where, like it or not, they have a a role to play, and it's in our interest to try to influence them in certain directions. Bilal?
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that, but I mean, the. We should have seen the fruits thus far of that conversation, the US-Russian dialogue, whether it's Syria or anywhere else, but it hasn't really produced any desirable outcomes. I think the relationship between the two leaderships is so toxic because of Ukraine that it's really difficult, although I agree with which it's not impossible. And it's stupid just to limit it to the Ukrainian issue, but it's going to be very difficult to discuss other matters uh, given the Ukraine situation.
2: Do we have a couple of last questions?
3: Can
1: I to Barry's
2: question? I'm sorry?
1: the idea that
3: this is interest-free. I actually think there's some real U.S. interest in this conversation. One is the stability of Saudi Arabia. Uh, if Saudi, you know, it's the, impact, the relationship of Saudi oil to global, the global economy is profound. I think second of all, I, I am worried about uh, proliferation and the the connection or nexus between proliferation and terrorism, both regionally and and globally. The Iran issue obviously also brings into concerns, not just relations with certain Arab states, but Israel. So I actually think the U.S. interests are, are considerable uh, in this conversation. We haven't been explicit about it, but I actually think this is not an interest free conversation or an interest free part of the world. That's one of also the realities of globalization. We can't, and you know, the Middle East is not some giant gated community that we can just ignore and think we're going to be fine in Fort Lauderdale. It doesn't work that way.
2: General Kimmett, do you want to take the last question? Uh, do we have a microphone, please, right up here? I can talk
3: loud. He can project. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the general brief.
2: Uh, the Ladies coming to you right I... down, down the aisle here. Uh, first,
9: I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we probably could have had this conversation 10 years ago. Uh, Richard said that we're having a 30-year war. We, in fact, are probably at the end of the first decade of that 30-year war. We talked about the long war 10 years ago when you and I were walking through the desert at that time. But what I wanted to ask was I was struck by when we first had Bilal talk about the security architecture and then Barbara's first comment was about General Dempsey's comments this morning. You talked about this being fundamentally a security issue, but General Dempsey was talking about it being primarily a political issue, that this was an issue of regional, it wasn't an issue of regional architectures, it was a political issue, failed nations, failed states. And then we had Richard talking about dialogue. And and the problem is I I hear a lot about the security answers to all of this or the security suggestions, which is what this conversation is all about today. But are we really listening enough to what Richard is saying about that this is fundamentally issues of failed states and that ISIS and these types of movements are reactions to the failed states, that they they are not the cause of the problems, but they are the effect of the problems. So fundamentally, my question is, as a national government, who should be taking the lead for what you're prescribing here? Should it be the Pentagon or should it be the State Department?
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, The intersection between security and politics is obviously very real. Uh, Just if you go back to Acres, 1991, 1995, the security talks were, the talks were not limited to security. Uh, In many ways, they were related to uh, the peace process, right? Uh, between the Egyptians and uh, the Israelis, and then the Jordanians and the Israelis, they were not limited to security. And by, n- by no means I would consider this limited to security. Uh, Richard an Institution, in no way did I really uh, envision anytime soon for this to be a regime or an institution. As a matter of fact, I would agree that we're talking here about a code of conduct rules. We need those more than any other time. Uh, who would take the lead in US government for that? I think the State Department should be by far at the forefront of this, uh, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, Jim Baker was at the forefront, and he was seen by all sides as a very practical, straightforward, straight shooter, uh, and very impartial kind of guy, which is why his leadership was quite instrumental to get these guys to sit down at the same table and talk. Mind you, at the time, the Iranians were not invited, which was a huge mistake, the Iranians, the Libyans, and the Iraqis. Uh, all confrontational states, obviously. Uh, and a lot of them suspected of having WMD programs at the time. This mistake should not be repeated today. As a matter of fact, I would definitely recommend that the Iranians will be part of this conversation. But the State Department should be in the lead, the White House for sure, in terms of presidential leadership and guidance. And when there is any military assistance or any other technical assistance, as it was provided during Acres, then the Pentagon also should be, uh, should be part of the conversation.
2: So we're coming to the end here, and uh, I'll take reporter's prerogative, which I never get at the Pentagon, um, and, and just I'll offer a last thought um, in this hearing this morning with Ash Carter, Secretary of Defense, and General Dempsey. While we've been sitting here, one of the things that Ash Carter has told the Senate Armed Services Committee, and it perhaps is just a telling statistic, where the US goal has been to try and find so-called moderate Syrian rebels to train and equip to go back and fight ISIS inside Syria. Secretary Carter has told the committee this morning that in the first three months of this program, which is aimed at training up to 5,000 Syrian rebels per year, that being the goal, that in the first three months, they have managed to be able to train 60. That, it, that is what they have been able to do so far. A variety of reasons, they found that, actually, 60 moderates. Okay. <laughs> yeah. right. a variety of circumstances. We're impressed. They found
4: 60, we're, we're impressed.
2: They are working uh, to, to vet and get more through the program, but I think it's just um, sort of a to minor finish. statistic, make of it what you will, Fantastic. but telling perhaps of the challenges that we've been discussing. I want to I want to take a moment and thank everybody. It's been absolutely terrific. Thank you. And to thank our panel. And regrettably, we leave this lovely air conditioning to go invitation. back outside. <laughs>